You'll be making your way to Luke 15. We're going to read a text there in just a few moments, Luke chapter 15. Sort of continuing some of the thoughts from this morning, I want to go on talking about some of the cultural ills that we deal with. This time of year is always tough uh, as a speaker. You know, I told Katie what I was thinking about preaching about. She said, you're going to preach about that the day before Christmas? And uh, that's just the way it is sometimes, right? I, I, it is a struggle, but I, I think there's some important things we need to deal with and talk about in our culture, even going into a new year and reflecting on this. Uh, and so this sermon's probably not what you think it's going to be, and we'll see how that goes as we get into it. It's really a, a focus on the cultural ill of selfishness, how everything is directed toward me and towards you. Every single thing that we do, every aspect of our life, particularly things like social media or where we spend a lot of our time, for example, on YouTube, it's all about you and who you are. And in this sort of concept or idea, it's very hard for us to have external thinking, thinking beyond ourselves. And the world itself is really not geared in that direction at all. I, I think particularly of, of athletes and the things that they say, they're kind of, they, they often become this like foil for what humanity ought to be. Uh, I remember Tara Owens a number of years ago, I think it was like 2007, he tried to copyright the phrase, I love me some me. This sort of shows the problem that we have in our culture. Or LeBron James proclaiming, I am a living legend, right? This is the nature of the culture that we live in, right? Self-proclamation, um, trying to show everyone who we are and talking ourselves up. And of course, I, I'll even talk about this tonight a little bit. Talking to ourselves positively is a great thing, and we, we need to do some of that. Um, but there also needs to be some instruction on the right way to go about this. It brings to mind Proverbs 27 and verse 2 as a parent, and this is something that, this concept at least, uh, something I try to share with my kids when I feel like it's needed. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. You know, we don't want our children going around talking about how great they are and how they're the best. And we know some of that sometimes is, is to have fun with their friends and, and those kinds of things. But even in that, part of what I want to talk about tonight is how little words matter. Words even as small as pronouns. Something just, we, we totally disregard it often in our language. Pronouns are, they're little words, almost unnoticeable in our speech. Except in reality, they aren't. Those around us, and there's a ton of research on this, but those, are, those around us, they consciously and even subconsciously recognize the way we're using even things like pronouns or how we choose to use pronouns. Pronouns can demonstrate humility and pride, selfishness, selflessness, awareness, ignorance. And yes, they are that powerful. A while ago, I came across this book called The Secret Life of pronouns. I know it sounds really thrilling uh, to think about grammar in this way, but actually it is pretty fascinating. James Penbecker uh, is a scholar who's worked for years on identifying the way people use language, and there's all sorts of, of applications to this. He deals with the differences between how men and women talk and how words are used in a narrative and how it changes throughout a narrative and, and all sorts of things that are, are pretty interesting if you like that, that sort of thing. But one of the big parts of this, obviously, from the title itself, is how big the idea of even small words are and the way that we talk and how big of a deal that actually is 
in our life. Uh, another person, this is not Pinbecker, but another researcher, probably working off of some of his work, made this statement, I and we are quietly working for us behind the scenes. Pronoun use over time appears to be a good indicator of emotional health, community connectedness, and relationship status. So little words deserve a little more attention from an article called The Psychology of Pronouns. Okay, so I know all of this is probably super boring to some of you, but the idea is that every word matters, which is a concept from Scripture. The things that come out of our mouth, Matthew 15 and Matthew 12, all of the little things that we say that sometimes maybe we don't think matter all that much actually do, and they, they build a persona about who we are. The way people see us and the way people view us often has to do a lot with how we talk. There's a concept within, within marketing called narrative transportation, right, where this is using words and sometimes images to, to make you feel something, and, and they ultimately want to sell you on something, right? I, of course, because I'm talking about words, I think of a really graphic uh, image storyline. Remember last year, the old man, he's in his garage, and he's out there, and he's picking up this weight, right, this kettlebell, he's picking it up, and he's falling, and people are watching him, and his the neighbor's worried about him, and he's doing all these weird exercises, and as the story goes along, it gets to the end, and of course, what he's trying to do is get himself to a situation where by Christmas time, he can pick up his little granddaughter and let her put the star on top of the tree, right? That's narrative transportation. It's selling you on something. It's making you feel a part of the story, and words are powerful in doing that, and the way we talk around people makes a huge difference in how they view us, and you know this. You're very aware of the people who are good conversationalists in your life, the people you enjoy talking to, the people who know how to make things about everyone else around them, and you're also very well aware of the people in your life who, when you talk to them, they make it all about themselves. And no matter what the conversation is, what, what, what it is around you, it always seems to come back to them and the things they're dealing with and who they are and what they're doing. And so we feel this. We know the difference, and we understand this concept that really every word matters. So in the research that's done on this, uh, again, just to kind of give a quick summary, it's really that this gives us a window, the way people talk, and the research shows this in depth, but you can feel it as you talk to people. You get a sense of their emotional health, of their relational ability and status, how they interact with people just in the little things that they say and the way that they talk. Also, and this may be more alarming, there is a strong correlation between depression and anxiety and the use of what they call I-words. So in a culture that's very self-focused and brings everything back to self, unfortunately doing that is also highly correlative to being depressed and having high levels of anxiety. Now, is that a result or is it a cause? Not sure we actually know, but it is very much correlated to this. On the other hand, we type words, right, community words, togetherness type of wording is actually correlated to things like a lack of anxiety or happiness in our life. So they've gotten so detailed on this, you can go, they actually have it set up, now you can go to websites and you can put in Twitter handles and you can detail somebody's personality just from like the last 700 to 1,000 words of something they've posted on, on Twitter. So a while back when I was messing around with this, I put in Jordan Peterson and Joe Biden and various others. 
And then tonight, I talked to Danny, and I got some of y'all's Twitter handles. And next, we're going to talk about your path. No, just kidding. Just kidding. All right, there we go. <clears throat> I thought I said some funny things earlier, but I wasn't getting any laughs. No, I wouldn't do that. But you, you get the sense of, of how that feels, right? We don't post things on social media thinking that people are analyzing what we say. In a very real way now, that can actually be done. And we better believe that people are actually analyzing the things that we say on something like Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be. People are aware and they're making judgments and sometimes it's on the way we word things and the way we talk, which ought to be very important to anyone who is following God, who's doing the will of God, because the importance and the power of words matter. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, the wise man says in Proverbs 18. James 3 talks about how this, this little thing can set ablaze. It can cause all sorts of problems. It can create anger and malice and bitterness. It also can do a lot of good. And so there's a lot of power in the tongue, and we know that. And so I want to talk about some elements of this in terms of how even little words make a huge difference. And so in a moment, we're going to read through some parts of Luke 15, and I want you to notice this as we read through that. Words are tools, and, and I've really already introduced that to you a little bit already. They shape the world, and they build things, and they are a function of our thoughts, and, and Jesus talks about this as well in, in Matthew 15. That's really the point. They're all worried about, you know, are they washing their hands before they eat, and he says it's not the things that go into your mouth that defile you. It's what comes out that, that defiles you. It's the things that come out of the mouth that, that lead to envy and murder and strife. That's the problem. It's, it's not that a little dirt goes into your mouth because you don't wash your hands. And of course, Jesus in their very ritualistic world is kind of rocking the world on what really matters. But he's pointing out the importance of the way that we think, the nature of our heart, and then the words that we allow to come out of our mouth. And so words can be weapons. Words can be manipulative. They can be hurtful. They can warp the truth. In Romans chapter 1, when Paul's talking about how God's wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, he talks about those who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is a warping of words, right? Isaiah talks about calling good evil and evil good. And so even in the way things are phrased or, or talked about, there is, the, the words are a tool. They can be a tool or they can be propaganda for good. They can be propaganda for evil, depending on how they're being used. We actually see this in Luke 15. I'm, I'm going to read later in the text the prodigal son. But before we get there, I want to point your attention earlier in the text to verses 1 and 2. Because this really sets the scene for what Jesus is about to do in the story of the prodigal. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You know, that demonstrative pronoun is actually pretty powerful. Even though they're right here with Jesus, they want to set themselves apart. This man, right? We don't receive tax collectors and sinners, but this man, this is what he does. Right, so just a tiny little word, but that word is being used really in a manipulative sense. It's being used to try to warn people about the dangers of Jesus and who he is. It's an attempt to 
proclaim shame for anyone who would follow this man and what he's doing. And this is the sort of thing the scribes and the Pharisees do regularly. I mean, we can go to something like John 9. You're familiar with that story, right, where he heals the blind man, and they keep asking the blind man how this happened, and he keeps telling them, you know, I don't know, I'm not an expert like all of y'all, but I just know that I was blind, and now I see, right? And the parents won't even admit to what happened because they're worried they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue, and basically the rulers say, who are you to tell us? You're a sinner, and you're trying to tell us who this guy is? This guy's not from God, Right? So they're using their words in a very powerful way to manipulate the crowds and the people around. This is what the Pharisees and the scribes do in their interactions with Jesus. Fortunately, words also are tools that can bring healing. They, they can bring comfort or compassion, and they can offer instruction. We can actually do some of that to others, but as I talked about earlier, some of that is to our, ourselves. At times, we are harder on ourselves than anyone else. Have you ever felt that? And it may be that at times we need to show ourselves a little bit more grace than we do, particularly in how we, we talk about ourselves, whether it's in our mind, and we all kind of have a running monologue in our heads, right? The things that we're doing day to day, actually we see this in the story that we're about to read, how we're kind of telling ourselves things and we're thinking things. And of course, those thoughts and that internal dialogue actually then influences the things that we do and the things that we continue to think. And so words can bring healing. There's a, a massive part of the psychological world now led by, it started with William James, really, but Martin Seligman, who's an expert in this field, he's worked with military cognitive therapy is this huge benefit in dealing with things like anxiety and depression. I think some of this needs to be talked about way more than it is, even in pulpits, because this is just such a massive problem in our culture. Between 2007 and 2012, among young people, anxiety jumped by 20%. That's nothing compared to what's happened in the last five years. In the last five years, those who have clinically significant general anxiety and depression among young cohorts, this is what the research says, have gone from 11.6% with anxiety and 12.9% with depression and have jumped to 20% and 25%. So that means one-fourth of our young people, at least according to research, whatever that's worth, have clinically significant generalized depression. One-fourth. One-fifth have anxiety. I, I did a talk at home with the young people before they started school, and we talked about this, and I was actually amazed. I thought they would have some good answers to some of the questions I asked about this, but I was actually amazed how much they talked about it and how anxious they felt in life. It's just not something I remember as a kid being significant, and I'm not trying to minimalize it. When I was younger, I'm sure it existed but it is such a huge factor today, and our young people and our older people, too, need words of healing. They need to learn how to speak truths to themselves, to talk about the promises of God, to be assured by the things that God has assured us with, like this is the promise he has made us, eternal life, that there is purpose and meaning to life, and there's so much more we could say all about that, but words are tools that can be used for healing. A soft answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 15 and verse 1. And words can actually change 
our minds. This is another aspect, uh, and I'm certainly not an expert in psychology, but I, I enjoy reading about it, but the idea of neuroplasticity is something that is very well received now, that your brain can be changed, it can be reshaped, that we aren't just destined to be a certain way, which is kind of a Freudian thought, that unfortunately is just accepted by many in the world, that you just are who you are and you can't change. That is completely anti-biblical. The Bible shows us you can change, and your mind and your brain can be reshaped and changed by truth, by what God has revealed to us. And part of that is the sorts of things that we say to ourselves. I got into this because I was a big golfer, and I, I love Bob Rotella, who is a, uh, a mental golf coach. So I started going down this road, and it was so interesting. You know, I don't know how many of you have golfed, but have you ever been angry on the golf course? You know, get a little upset because you hit a bad shot or things don't go right. And how does that help you as you continue on in your golf endeavor that day? Not so much, okay? And so the mental part of something like really any sport or game is pretty important, um, but you see it almost directly with something like golf where it just completely changes everything about what you're doing when you get angry and frustrated mad as opposed to keeping yourself calm, and learning methods of how to do that. And so that's where I started with some of this just in my own learning, and then it went down the road to some of these others. But learning to talk positively to ourselves and having a good internal dialogue about things that are true and right, even when we are in the midst of really difficult, hard times, is really important. All right, so let's read part of this story in Luke 15 and see if you can pick out any elements of this with what happens with this younger son. And he said, this is being Jesus, there was a man who had two sons. This is verse 11. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son." Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and treated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want us to understand not only are words tools, but they are also mirrors. It's a little scary. Have you ever thought, like when someone, we did a little bit of this today actually, when someone shows you a video of yourself, do you enjoy that? I don't like to listen to myself preach. I hear like every mistake I make and every little thing I don't like. Some of you have experienced that as well, whether it's something like this, teaching or other things that you've done. It's not a lot of fun. But our words are kind of mirrors. And when someone brings those words back to us, sometimes it reveals a lot about who we are. And my words will betray me. I don't necessarily mean that in a totally negative sense. It's just that no matter what we do or how we try to hide, eventually our words will reveal who we are. Luke 6.45 says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Over time, our words will reveal the kind of person we are. That's actually something that they have, again, shown in research as they've analyzed conversation after conversation. They can pick out people who are trying to, to lie or hide things by the way they're wording the things that they're saying. And yes, this can be done on a very technical level with research, but also we just get this from person to person. We understand the nature of, of how this works. I, I remember when I was younger and I first started preaching, and I may some, say something else about this a little bit later on, but I was working with Brother Bowman, and he told me, one of the things he told me, one of the best things he ever told me in advice was, sometimes someone's going to come to you and they don't like what you did, and they don't even know why. Or what they tell you that they don't like is actually wrong, but you have to understand there's something they didn't like about what you did, and it's your job to figure it out. And a lot of times, they're picking up on arrogance or lack of sincerity or something like that that they can't necessarily put into words, but they can feel it and they don't like it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been listening to somebody and you just don't, you just don't like it? And it's not even that what they're saying is wrong or inaccurate, but you can, there's just something that doesn't feel right. And sometimes it's just the way we're using terms, the way we're using words. Look at this interaction again. This whole story is sort of this breakdown of this young boy, the things he's doing and the things he's thinking. And so the me in verse 12, right, 15 in verse 12, it's really laced with arrogance and delusion and rebellion. You've heard the sermons on, on how deep and cutting this request would have been, so I don't need to go into that, but give me the share of the property coming to me. Right? This is all about him, doesn't care about his father at all. He wants to go out and live the life and have a great time and go out into the world and experience all the things that he feels like he's missing out on. But it's interesting a few verses later when it says he came to himself in verse 17, he's actually using what we would call I words, but one of the things I want you to see is the context definitely matters. The context of how these words are used makes all the difference. 
right? So he says, I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned. And he keeps using all these I terms, but it's self-reflective. It's, uh, it's repetitive. It's admitting sin. And so certainly when we use terms like I and me and my about our own failures, that's not a bad thing. That is putting us in a position where, again, we can grow. And, and what about your thoughts as we read the story? You know, we get to that first section. I don't, I don't know how you felt, but to me, like, you kind of want to smack this kid, right? Just give me my property. I'm going to go do the things I want to do. Like, you don't have real good feelings about him. But then he's been through some stuff, some of it his own fault, some of it the fault of things he can't control, like famine. And he finds himself, but he finds himself in the pig pen, not a good place to find yourself. And he suddenly realizes how desperately he needs his father. You probably feel a little more compassion for this young boy at this point, right? And I think Jesus is telling the story in this way for that purpose. And then the father, who's great through the whole story, obviously, because he is this picture of our our heavenly father and the way he sees us and interacts with us, his response in verse 23, after the, the son begins his admission of sin, and the father, of course, stops him in mid-speech and says, hey, talks to his servants, go get the robe and, and put shoes on his feet and a ring on his hand. Like, you're mine. I, I want to show how much I care about you and let us eat and celebrate. Have you ever thought about these pronouns before as you're reading through Luke 15? He's excited about his son coming home, and this is something he wants to share with everyone. The togetherness he feels because he's rejoicing that the son that was lost has now returned. And then there is, in verse 29, what the story is, I think, actually about, and that is the older brother and his contempt, how he despises his younger brother for his father showing him love and concern. Remember the context all the way back in chapter 15 and 1 and 2, the tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You notice the father receives the son back, and he slaughters the fattened calf, and they have a huge celebration because his son that was lost is now found. And notice the wording of this older son. I served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate. I mean, do you see just how self-centered this older son is being? And it's just coming through even in the way he's speaking. Even as he's choosing to address this with his father. And think about maybe how could this have been done differently? Right? If he actually cared about his brother, he could have come to his father and say, Hey, you know, I know you're happy about your son coming home. I'm concerned that if we go about it this way, maybe it won't help him change. Right? Okay, there, there could be legitimate ways that the, the older brother with concern could come to the father about this scenario. And that's not the point of what Jesus is doing, but it just demonstrates through the way he's choosing to talk to his father, the words he's using, that this guy is so self-centered. Just as we talked about this morning, he'd done a lot of great things. He stayed with his father. He had worked the, the property. He had done all of these great works, but yet now you see the problem He's just all focused on himself. And so what value did all of that have? 
Well, fortunately, the father being who he is, I think, returns to the older son in a loving way as well and deals with him in compassion, as we as fathers ought to do with our children. And although his older son is upset and frustrated, think about the way he responds. You were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You see the love of the father with both sons here. And on one end, you see the the younger son's selfishness and his rebellion. And on the other end of the story, you see the older son's selfishness and rebellion. But what I want us to think about tonight is the power of our wording and the way that we talk and how it demonstrates the kind of person that I am when I do that. How the things that I say, they can really show how selfish I'm being, or how selfless I'm being. I can try to hide it. If I really am selfish, I can try to hide it by saying the right things in the right situations and knowing how to talk to certain people, but the reality is over time, uh, that will betray me. And if I'm really evil in my heart, that'll come out. But part of this is determinative. Like the way we think about how we say things actually affects the things that we do. So he says, I will arise, and I will go, and I will say to my father, and he arose, and he came to his father. (laughs) See how that internal dialogue then produced action? And so I hope what you're seeing here is, I mean, I know these are small little things. We're not talking about big concepts. I mean, we're talking about like pronouns, little words, demonstratives, but how significant they are, not just in the story, but even in our own lives as we're deciding the things that we're going to do, the decisions that we're going to make. And really that my thoughts and words, they require monitoring. This is what James 3 is all about. You can't tame the tongue, right? If I decide that I can just let it go and just be what it is, I'm going to get myself in some really dangerous conversations. So James is letting us know we have to be careful the way that we speak. Because it matters, both in the way we think and in the actions that come from what's welling up in our heart and then coming out of our mouths. So all of this really boils down to this idea that the way that we speak really relates to the concept of self-awareness, which is something that is a little bit lost in our culture. Now, maybe it's been lost in cultures in the past as well. This goes back to things like, I love me some me with Terrell Owens or these statements that people make that just sound so foolish and silly. The only thing that could have made that worse, by the way, is if they would have said those things in the third person. That's, I hate that. When athletes do that, they talk about themselves in the third person. It just makes it even that much worse. But again, word choice, right? It makes a difference, and it can make us sound really silly. Word choice can be really cringy. I remember, again, when I was younger, I was working with Brother Bowman, and I was preaching, and I really got into a point. I made this point really strongly. It wasn't necessarily good. I just, I made it really strongly. There was a lot of pointing and a lot of using the word you, and the next day when we came to the office, uh, he, he was great about giving critiques, very positive and helpful, but he explained that as good as my intentions were and what I was trying to do, that the point was actually lost. Because the way I was saying it was really holding myself above the people. Probably wasn't my intention, but the way it came across was so poor. It said, you got to be careful. You can't do that. So here's some things he went on to say. 
I work great. If you want to talk about yourself, that works great with you ending up with egg on your face. Right? If you want to tell stories and you want to talk about yourself and you end up being the one who's laughed at or the one who made the mistake, that's great. But I is really pretentious when it is the example of holiness or the model Christian. And, and I'm talking here specifically about the pulpit and what he was telling me about that, but really this applies in other parts of life too as we talk to people. If I'm always projecting myself as the model to follow of Christianity, probably not going to go very well. Right? And you, using a lot of yous, that's great when you're trying to encourage or praise or express gratitude to people, but it's not so great when it's always the subject of accusation or blame or chiding, like, you need to get your life right. Well, we, <laughs> no one who stands in a pulpit like this and preaches is any better than anyone who doesn't. And so even just small little things and wording like that makes such a difference in how messages are received and even the way that we think. Because here's the thing, if we continue to do that, if you're preaching or if you're teaching, and you've got plenty of those people who do that here, and you're continually doing this sort of thing, you can end up thinking you're better. Your words can lead to those types of thoughts, and we have to be very deliberate about the way we think and the way we word things and how we come across both in the setting like this but also in the workplace or at school or wherever we might be and how we interact with people. And it relates to being aware. Being aware of how important our words are. Now what you thought I was going to talk about when you first saw the slide, I just want to spend a minute talking about that. If first-person pronouns and using them is really a window into the emotional and relational status of our mind, what about when we make up our own pronouns? What does that say about us? When we demand people say things that aren't even true to affirm our beliefs about ourselves that are fake. I will tell you I believe there is a strong connection between the level of depression and anxiety in our culture, and not just this one area, but the source of what leads to this. Of how important it is that everyone affirm what I think about myself, and then when they don't, now what? Chris Emerson, who's a close friend of mine, has done a couple of podcasts on this. If you've listened to Excel Still More, uh, really good. I encourage you to go listen to them. One of them is called The Metal Me Bubble, which is all about driving and the way we act when we drive, talking about these types of things. But then he did another one later on. I think it was called Count Your Pronouns. And the idea there is just notice in your language how often you're talking about yourself. And let that be a guide, maybe a way to reflect about where you are and maybe some changes that need to be made. Our culture is consumed with self, with defining self and self-discovery, finding self, self-care, self-love, self-image, self-expression, selfies. It's all about me. That's what our life pushes around us and the culture and the society we live in. And it is a culture that enables mental illness, and there's just no other way to say it. And this is why we end up with social media posts like, I can't take it anymore, dot, dot, dot. Or I'll just never understand, dot, dot, dot. Seeking and looking for attention and wanting people to reach out. Listen, go make friends and talk to them 
and care about their problems and build mutually beneficial relationships where they care about you and you can have a conversation and you can tell them you're struggling and that you need help and they can tell you they're struggling and they need help. Don't post random stuff on Facebook that's just looking for attention. That is a product of our culture when we are focused only on ourselves. And I'm not trying to be harsh here, it's just the reality of where we are. And I, I hope, again, I, I'm not trying to be ugly, but I'm trying to give some good advice, way more powerful to go make a real friend and talk to that person and to help them and let them help you, particularly with godly wisdom and insight, looking at Scripture together. That's the sort of thing that's actually going to bring benefit not just getting a bunch of likes or hearts or the hearts with the person hugging it or whatever that is, the care. I mean, it's great, and I'm glad we can connect in all sorts of ways, but that's not real interaction, and we need to understand that. Sometimes we need to pick up a phone and actually talk to somebody. We need to meet them for coffee, be face-to-face, -face, have real interactions. Timothy Keller made this statement, the modern self is exceptionally fragile. While having the freedom to define and validate oneself is superficially liberating, it is also exhausting. And I just see that through and through in our culture. Those of you who are a little younger, I still feel like I'm young, but there's probably some who are younger than me here. You're, if you're pulled toward this idea and the things I've been talking about today, just understand, even though it may seem to have some sense of liberty to it and freedom, it is just so exhausting to everyone around you and ultimately to yourself. And it's not important that you find yourself. It's important that you find Jesus Christ, and it's important that you follow him and that you obey his will, and you see the peace and the blessings that come from being in Christ. That's what actually truly matters. And so our words have major impact, both on the actions that come in our life and even the way that we think, which is why Paul tells us to be careful about the things that we think about, to think on good things and noble things and praiseworthy things. And all of this then boils down to this reality that our words do matter, Matthew 12, 36 and 37. It says, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Hopefully it's the first for us that we are justified, that we are made right, that as people of God who are seeking to do God's will, we are saying things that are in accordance with the will of God. And this is not like fake and smile and act like you're happy all the time when you really aren't. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about being real, actually. And in a group like this, having real interactions, and when you're struggling and when there's been loss, as you even mentioned this morning, that has clearly happened, or people are struggling with sickness, that we actually have these interactions that are real and substantive because that is what it is about to be God's people together. That's the sort of thing that makes a difference, and honestly, that's the sort of thing that the world just does not have. I, I don't know. We've been through a lot at Decker Prairie where we live in the last year uh, my coworker died, Tony Mock, who some of you know. We had a few other deaths. A young man who was 29 died within a month, just unexpectedly. We didn't know that was going to happen. Um, a young mom who was 42 passed away. All of this actually within like six weeks of each other. That's tough. 
And it was tough for our group. But one of the things I thought so often during all of this is I just can't even imagine going through this and not having this. Not having God's people to be with, being alone and isolated, and not sure if there's people who care about you. I I just, I don't understand. I, I think this may be one of the most important blessings that we have, and in God's wisdom, he has put us in a place like this and wants us to do this. So that when we do go through things, we can encourage each other. We can uplift each other. We can realize that God's ultimate plan is that one day he's going to make all things right. And it's going to be on his timetable. It's going to happen according to his will. And that he is going to deal in justice with wickedness and evil. And we want to be in Christ as his people so that when that day comes, the sons of God are glorified and the whole earth is then redeemed from futility, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. And what a glorious thought that one day God's going to make everything right. And we can be a part of that as his people. So what do your words reveal about you? Are you with God? Are you on his side? Are you doing things his ways? Or like culture, is it just about me and what I want? And hopefully we see the failure of that. We see the worthlessness, the futility of thinking that way. And we see the value of a place like this, and I'm speaking to people who clearly are here tonight, and I think that you do. If you've been struggling, though, and you need some help, the place to go is not social media. The place to go is to your shepherds, to people who are trusted in this group tonight, a trusted friend that you can go to and ask for help. That's the place to go and receive encouragement and hope and be uplifted as God's people together. And if you're not in Jesus Christ and you know that you need that, we can help you with that tonight as well. God's plan is marvelous. He can take you from a life of sin, a life of wickedness, and he can remove all of that, and you can be declared righteous in his sight. You can be one of his. He'll put the robe on you, and he'll put shoes on your feet, and he'll put the ring on your finger because you are his child. Can we help you with that tonight? Why don't you come as we stand and we sing together?